Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour we'll talk about the Safety Act, a new state law that has gotten plenty of publicity and not all of it positive. What does it do and what changes to the law can be made this fall? We'll also hear about efforts to give former prisoners a second chance. Illinois went blue in the election. Democrats came out big in the most contested races. So what does that mean for Republicans in the state? We'll discuss the political landscape of Illinois going forward. A tutoring program could help students get back up to speed after the pandemic disruption. Also, an investigation finds employees of a food education program are paid so little they themselves are food insecure. And how a small city in Illinois is celebrating its diversity. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way, we'll talk about the Safety Act, a controversial criminal justice law and what changes lawmakers could make to it. There is a state proposal that might help people released from prison find work and how one community is celebrating immigrants. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. It was a good election for Democrats in Illinois this week. They swept the statewide offices. They also were able to keep their supermajorities in the Illinois General Assembly and increase their advantage in the Illinois congressional delegation. Helping us go beyond the vote totals is Kent Redfield. He's a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Illinois Springfield. Kent, you have followed elections for many years. What was the takeaway you had from what you saw this week? What happened in Illinois was really just a a confirmation of uh, what Illinois electoral politics has become. We are a a pretty blue state. It is very difficult for Republicans to win statewide elections because Democrats have a lot more money and they also have the demographics are in their favor, you know, as the state has changed over time. Uh, It's difficult for Republicans to win congressional races or seats in the Illinois General Assembly because the Democrats get to draw the maps. You know, they've they've controlled, you know, the governor's chair and the legislature, and they've drawn the last three maps for the state legislature and and the last two maps uh, for the uh, for Congress. Uh, uh, These are very partisan maps that you know, kind of ring the last possible drop of advantage uh, to the person, you know, the party drawing the map, in this case, the Democrats, in, in a state that, you know, might be more 56, you know, 44 kind of split. You know, we've got a congressional delegation that's got, uh, you know, 14 Democrats and three Republicans. It's a very difficult hill for uh uh, Republicans to uh, decline because of of the maps and and the demographics. You know, uh, Chicago has gotten more democratic. Cook County, suburban Cook has gotten more democratic. The suburbs have gotten more competitive. Downstate has gotten more Republican, but it's losing population more quickly than the rest of the state. The only thing that was keeping Republicans afloat since 2014 was having Republican billionaires to shore up their 
you know, their, their funding for their campaigns. And uh, uh, with uh, Ken Griffin uh, abandoning the state, uh, you know, that we're down to kind of Richard Euland and uh, in terms of the Republican billionaires, whereas the Democrats have a strong funding base independent of having a billionaire governor. Is it all about money, though? Um, in, like you said, it may it may depend on the candidates as well. In Illinois, when it comes to Republicans, traditionally they've been sort of the fiscal conservative and the the social moderates. We didn't have that this time with with Darren Bailey. You know, is that just a recipe for disaster for uh, for any Republican trying to run statewide? Yeah, I I you know it it certainly is. I mean, you know, if the suburbs are the battleground, if you know, Chicago more than balances off, Chicago and suburban Cook more than balance off downstate in terms of the percent, you know, the vote share in terms of a statewide race. So the competition is in the suburbs. And, you know, you you have to, you know, you've, you've got to have the kind of candidate that a, appeals to kind of the, you know, the average suburban voter. I mean, you know, money is not everything. People People without money almost always lose, but money only, you know, money gets you into the ballgame. People know you're running, they take you seriously, but getting out spent two to one is not fatal if your one is big enough. You have to get over those thresholds of visibility and credibility to get to, to get to the point where people are looking at what you're saying seriously. And then uh, you know, the right candidate with the right message beats the candidate that has more money. It's not a not a magic formula, but the absence of money is also very critical. And so the Democrats, when they in in certain congressional races, certain state legislative races, you know, when they saw that troubling trends nationally or trends in Illinois that where they might be getting a little nervous. They had resources that they could take and put into those those races where the Republicans had to make choices about where they were going to make their bets. And then if they, you know, if they put the money in the wrong race, you know, they really were kind of stuck. Uh, you know, the other thing in terms of what went on, while we had concern about inflation, about the price of gas, about the economy, and we certainly had concerns about crime. You know, those weren't the only issues out there, and Democrats could uh, focus on reproductive rights, and they could focus on gun violence, and they had issues that you know could counter the issues that uh, uh, the Republicans were trying to focus on. When we're talking about money, we look at how things have changed in the state of Illinois, and you you mentioned earlier the self funders. Uh, like a J.B. Pritzker. And not only that, they can help give a ton of money. Bruce Rauner did the same thing to other candidates. Has that changed the landscape? Being somebody that has followed campaign finance for so long in Illinois, has that changed the landscape here in the state? Yeah, it it, it does. I mean, it, it certainly provides leverage, although it, it certainly isn't everything. Pritzker got into a fight over who's going to be chair of the Democratic Party that uh, made that took two years to win. I mean, so a governor or even a incredibly rich <laughs> governor, you know, they don't win all the time. You know, it, it gives you backup if your base is strong, if your base is weak, it, it, it does provide relief, but it also 
means that you become reliant on the big money bailing you out. And maybe you don't work as hard on term, trying to fix the problems that you have within, in this case, the Republican Party in terms of raising money. Because, you know, big manufacturing has, you know, was one of the sources of money. There's much less of that in Illinois. And even the manufacturers that are still here tend to be national and international corporations that are not as invested in the state and in state politics, certainly was the case in the, in the, in the past. And, and so you've had a shift where healthcare money used to come from doctors and you know, other providers. And now all the money in healthcare is tied up in hospitals, nursing homes, health facilities, health insurance companies. And uh, those tend to be groups that like government to spend money. And so they, they tend to like uh, Democrats uh, more than they like Republicans. As times change, you have to adapt to that. And so if uh, Richard Yulin decides that he doesn't want to invest any more money in Illinois after what happened in this cycle, and Ken Griffin is already gone, the only billionaire in town may be J.B. Pritzker, and the Democrats already have a huge advantage. You know, we've had billionaire politics and you know, we may have less of that, but uh, it probably just exposes the weaknesses in the ability of the Republican Party to raise money. Where does the Republican Party go from here? What's you know what could be the next step for them? Because certainly, they're not making the progress here in the state of Illinois that they had hoped yeah. to. Well, and and I think you know, I mean, they you may, can get a doubling down on. You know, our problem is we weren't conservative enough. We've got all of the other people that are, you know, that 20% that isn't registered or whatever the number is these days, you know, well, they're just, you know, they're laden social conservatives, you know, that we that we just need to get them out and, and appeal to them and expand the electorate. But, you know, the alternative is if you look nationally, Democrats are gaining on college educated, you know, professionals what the Republicans, you know, uh, often characterize as, you know, kind of the, the, the coastal elites. But Democrats have been, you know, losing working class blue collar voters, not only among, you know, uh, white voters, but also particularly among Hispanic voters. And so, you know, if uh, it may be better that for the Republican Party to talk less about cultural wars and more about how you know, the, the Democratic Party is elite and, you know, really doesn't understand the issues of, of real Americans and working class uh, voters. And clearly some of that group is feeling alienated from the hyper progressive uh, wing of the uh, Democratic Party. There, there are voters out there uh, that are up for grabs uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans. And if the Democrats don't uh, figure out how to how to relate and how to, to bring the, the different parts of their message together, that's an opportunity for the Republican uh, to go out and, and capture part of the, the Democratic, what's been traditionally the Democratic base. Kent Redfield is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Illinois, Springfield. Well, fresh off his re-election win, Governor J.B. Pritzker is still facing multiple questions about whether he'll run for president. Alex Stegman has that story. 
Despite meetings with top Democrats in other states and fiery speeches espousing Democratic values, Pritzker has downplayed his growing national profile for months. That practice is continuing. Pritzker told reporters he's, quote, not focused on running for president. He was asked if he would run in 2024 if President Biden doesn't. But again, Pritzker would not directly answer. He has said that he intends to run, and so I look forward to supporting him. I look forward, hopefully, to getting the convention here in Chicago so that we can renominate him and reelect him. During his news conference, Pritzker repeatedly branded the Republican Party as the party of Donald Trump and said his opponent was a, quote, Trump disciple. I'm Alex Degman. Illinois assessment of readiness test scores are down 7.5% in reading from pre-pandemic levels. Math scores have dropped 6% since then. Peter Medlin has more on a tutoring initiative education leaders hope can help get students back up to speed. Cameron Swan is tutoring two fifth graders at the Hiawatha School District, about a half hour south of Rockford. They both need help in language arts, but in different areas. That first week, it was just like small little activities. And I picked up one of them really struggles with spelling. So their fluency level is super low because they don't understand how to spell the word, let alone what it means. And then another one, he's like right at grade level and his needs are more so like attention and comprehension. Plenty of students are in that position, still trying to find their footing in school after a pandemic upended education. And the tutoring initiative is ramping up this fall. Hundreds of tutors are working with students from third to eighth grade across the state. Swan is a senior at Northern Illinois University who will be a middle school teacher next year and is a tutor in Illinois Region 2 of the initiative. It runs out of NIU and stretches from Starve Rock all the way up to the Wisconsin border. NIU is one of several universities acting as tutoring hubs for the federal COVID relief funded project. Amanda Baum is the Region 2 program coordinator at NIU. She says 31 school districts in their region were identified as disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Baum says they looked at socioeconomic indicators like the percentage of students who qualify for free and reduced lunch, along with COVID data and attendance numbers. As of now, they're working with students in around 10 districts across northern Illinois. And they're still training more teachers and securing more schools through this fall and hope to be at full capacity by the spring. The federal funding expires in 2024, so there is a sense of urgency to get it up and running. They also have point people at each partner's school who collaborate with the student's teacher and can identify other kids at the school who might need tutoring. The state calls this sort of tutoring high impact, which some research has shown can help students improve in math and reading. High impact means a few things. For one, it has to be either one-on-one or in groups no bigger than three. It also has to be frequent. Swan meets with her students two to three times a week for at least an hour. Baum says that maybe the most essential part is relationship building. She says some people might think of tutors like short-order cooks. They show up, help the kid with his algebra homework, and get out. But she explains that's not how this approach works. They're doing interest inventories, finding out how they feel about certain types of activities. We have Jenga and Uno and just using all of those little tricks to just play for a little bit so that the tutor can get to know the student and the student can see, hey, tutoring's fun. I want to come back. She says obviously academic outcomes are important, but if high impact tutoring can get a student to want to come to school every day and feel confident to re-engage in class, that's huge in its own right. Their tutors spend time getting to know kids and, in many cases, will spend the entire year working on targeted goals related to where they're having trouble. They do periodic assessments to make sure they're actually making progress. And after each session, both the tutor and student 
fill out a little form on how they feel the session went. Swan says that she starts off every session with a game to get students engaged and having fun. She's partial to this or that, where she presents a silly question like, would you rather fly or have magic powers? And then the students and the tutor have to defend their position. The girl I tutored was like, obviously I'd rather have magic powers because then I could just have the power to fly as well. And I was like, you got me on that. Swan's a future teacher who has already spent time working in classrooms and building lesson plans, which makes her an ideal candidate for the tutoring initiative, although plenty of other tutors are current teachers, retired teachers, or community members. She says she does work with students on their in-class assignments, but she also spends a lot of time building individual lesson plans to home in on the areas where her kids struggle. The majority of the time that we spend together, I make the material, we sit down, and they're learning a new concept, and I'm teaching them not only fluency and comprehension, but I'm also teaching them test-taking strategies. It's only been a few weeks, so it's hard to say if they're already making gains, but she says she feels like she knows exactly where she needs to target lessons. Illinois State Superintendent Carmen Ayala is also confident in the program. She directly called out the tutoring initiative recently as a big reason student growth scores could continue improving. And one of the other added benefits of the program, as mentioned, many tutors like Swan are future educators, and the experience gives them more tools they can use to help students once they're in charge of classrooms. I'm Peter Medlin. When lawmakers return to the Illinois State House this month, the Safety Act is expected to be on the agenda. We'll talk more about it. That's just ahead. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Tonight, questions surrounding the Illinois Safety Act and whether it will keep residents safe. People are freaking out. This thing is all over social media. Critics say they're concerned, likening it to the purge. One thing the two sides can agree is this law has become politicized. Well, you might have heard of the Safety Act. It's a criminal reform measure signed into law last year by Governor J.B. Pritzker. Republicans have been saying it will unleash crime in the state. Democrats say that's political fear-mongering. The debate has centered on the elimination of cash bail, but the law is much more than that. And Mary Dixon talked with reporter Shannon Heffernan about it. So changes are coming to the bail system in Illinois. Can you remind us just briefly what the changes are and why they might be so controversial? Of course. So the new law basically takes cash out of the equation when deciding who's kept in jail while they await their trial. Previously, a judge could give somebody cash bail, meaning they could pay money to go home while they were waiting for the trial to unfold. Under the new law, that's no longer an option. A judge just makes a decision based on a person's offense, their risk to safety, and the risk that they may flee. Um, opponents to this law say judges aren't going to have enough, enough discretion to hold people behind bars, and more people will be going home, and that's going to make communities less safe. Uh, proponents, however, say that this law is actually going to increase public safety. That's because when people can continue having stable lives, holding down jobs, for example, um, then communities are more stable, and more stable communities means more safety in the community. And once we get beyond the bail issue, there are a lot of other provisions included in the Safety Act. Could you tell us about a key part that addresses the needs of victims? Right. So there's this thing in the state called victim compensation. It basically gives money to victims of crime. If you think about it, being a victim of crime can be expensive. Funerals are expensive. Um, you can have lost wages. 
Under the new law, that program becomes a lot easier for people to apply to. They get 10 years instead of five years. But one of the biggest changes to the law is a person's criminal record won't automatically prevent them from being able to apply for victim compensation. In the past, it was really hard for somebody with a criminal record to get access to this cash. And there are several pieces of this law that are focused on policing that would increase oversight. Is that is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. One of the big things is police will now have to have body-worn cameras across the state. Um, every police department has to have that in effect by 2025. The state is also making changes to a decertification process. Basically, this means that it'll be easier when a police officer is accused of something really serious to take them off the streets. And there's a section of the law that focuses on electoral districts, you know, how the state divvies up political power for state elections. How is this a criminal justice issue? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting part of the law. So currently, when you draw an electoral map in Illinois, people are counted as being from the prison where they're incarcerated, not being from their hometown, right? So that inflates political power in these prison towns, often these rural areas, while political power in cities like Chicago, for example, that have high incarceration rates um, get smaller. Under the new law, people are going to be counted as being from the last address they lived at before they were incarcerated. Um, but I will say this law is fairly limited. It's not going to affect redistricting until 2031, so a long ways in the future. Also, the law specifically says that these new ways of calculating the population can't be used to change how federal and state funds are distributed. Obviously, that's a, a big deal because what money areas are entitled to can have a huge effect on a community. That's Shannon Heffernan. Shannon, thank you for this overview. Thank you so much. The Illinois General Assembly will soon return to Springfield for the fall session. And one of the main topics that will be under consideration is revisions to the Safety Act, State Representative Jahan Gordon-Booth, a Peoria Democrat, says while she feels much of the outcry over the act is politically motivated, she admits more changes are necessary. Gordon-Booth also understands the concerns of crime victims. Her stepson was shot to death in 2014. She spoke with Joe Deacon. As a person who represents a community that um, has seen some of the most violent incidences we've seen um, in this community's history, in the last year, um, also as someone whose family, we've been a victim of crime. You know, obviously it's well known that I, we lost our son to gun violence right here in the same community that my husband and I, we work in, working to help build the feeling of safety, the concern of safety is something that's real to me. So I'm always very sensitive to issues that make people from a legislative standpoint, not from a political standpoint, because politics is politics, which is a different thing but policies that could be even perceived as making communities less safe. Obviously, it's come under a lot of attack over this political campaign. What do you see as the reasons behind the attack and what can be addressed about it? What I would say about the attacks on the Safety Act is that it's a lot of politics because the fact of the matter of it is this bill became law in January of last year. 
and the idea that like 50 days ago in a campaign, and I get it, you know, I've been around politics long enough to know that these are the kinds of things that happen. It's unfortunate um, that something that most, when we talk about the bill reform issue, the Safety Act was not my bill, but it is something that early this year, the Speaker um, of the House asked me if I would begin to convene law enforcement as well as the advocates and you know members of our caucus. And I've been doing that now uh, for about nine months. And at the onset, it was sort of the associations, right? These are the folks that, you know, they work in and around Springfield. Um, our law enforcement has been involved in those conversations. The reason why I wanted them there was because as we're dealing with all of what's happened, when I say that there's a lot of politics that's happening, I also don't want to be dismissive of any real issues that may exist. And so as we continue down this path, um, I will tell you this, I'm very confident that uh, next month when we go into veto session, we're gonna have a body of work and a work product that is gonna be a good work product. If I may then, when you say that, obviously the governor has said too that the law probably needs some changes, some revisions, some yeah. reconsiderations. What kind of changes are the Democrats considering? So I would say that right now, because they're negotiations, I think it would be improper for me to sort of talk about those things in the public. But what I will share with you is that the majority of things that we're talking about that are uh, that have been brought to the table that we're going to make the um, effective changes on, there's consensus around it. There may be a couple, uh, like maybe one or two things that they're still right like not we're not at consensus point yet but that's why we're continuing to work we have another one of those meetings today so that this work product right this this bill that does a lot of really good things right the fact that um if we just think about the gentleman we all know he uh murdered his ex-wife i'm um, up in the west peoria area i'm um, in the young man kale who was in third grade at whittier and you remember what happened after he was apprehended and taken to jail? He was given a bond. He was given a bail. Although that bail was $4 million, he was still given a bail. The issue that I have with that is that someone who murdered their ex-wife, they murdered an innocent eight-year-old, an innocent wife, you murdered an innocent eight-year-old child, you shouldn't have had a bond. You should be remanded to jail because clearly, you are a threat to society. The challenge with our system that we have today is that people are given a bond, those that can afford it, they go home, regardless of whether or not they pose a threat to community. My issue is my son's murderer was given a bond. If he could have come up with $100,000, he could have walked out of jail and walked freely in the streets, that's wrong. So, and it seems like you're almost saying that this system then actually will keep more dangerous people off the street when the, when the other side is saying that this is going to let more people free before trial. And that's where the politics comes in, right? Like, that's the politics of this. This is the system that we're devising. It's the same system at the federal level. So are they also saying at the same time that the federal system is so dangerous and et cetera? Again, my bet to you on November 9th, a lot of this is going to probably go away. Because this is a this is highly political, um, but do I want to give the insinuation that we don't need to make some tweaks? Certainly, we need to make tweaks. Anytime you do any massive reform, there are always going to be tweaks. We've made um, already 
the bill passed January 2021. Um, during lame duck session, there was another trailer that was passed um, spring of 2021. There was another uh, trailer that passed fall of 2021. We passed another trailer um, spring of 2022. And we're gonna do another one in the fall veto session. That is the reason why the inaction date was pushed out for two whole years. I do think that sometimes when uh, narratives get spun in one way or another, it can be difficult for people to really understand, like, where's the real truth? Um, that's the unfortunate reality of politics, but that's where we're at. Obviously, there's lawsuits pending against the act right now, and there are, are states' attorneys from both parties that are seeking changes to yeah. this law. I mean, so it is political, but in a way, it's also, it is bipartisan, some of the challenges to the law. Sure, which is why we have both Democrats and Republicans at the table, states' attorneys, right, having these conversations. So we have both sides uh, because we want to hear both perspectives. But again, um, at the onset, you know, the, my, our local folks weren't at the table, but I wanted to be sure that our local folks were at the table because I believe that they are the beacons for me on this issue to be able to like cut through, you know, what is practical, what is real, what is necessary. When you say practical, I've, some of the concerns I've heard is the actual practical implementation of a no-cash bond system once it goes into effect in January. I mean, what are the concerns that you've heard in that regard? So part of that is some of what's being worked through. So there are other states that have a no-bond system. Like the state of New Jersey does not have a bond system. So there are states that have this system. Um, so this has been done before. What I would say to that is um, I'm listening to everybody. So there is no... Um, there's no voice that's going unheard. I want to be crystal clear about that. There's no voice that's going unheard. It's critically important that we're listening to folks and also being mindful of how we got here in the first place. All of this was passed um, coming out of the summer of 2020 uh, where people were demanding that we change this broken justice system. And so we're working to do just that. Um, I think that there's a lot of consensus at the table on the changes that have to be made. Um, there are still some that, you know, again, that we're working through, but I feel very positive about it. That's State Representative Jahan Gordon-Booth, a Democrat from Peoria, discussing the Safety Act and what might lie ahead as lawmakers return to the State House this month. About 10% of U.S. households are food insecure, and there are a number of federal programs in place to help bring that number down. One of the programs is the Supplemental Nutrition Education Program, or SNAP-Ed, which involves educating food stamp recipients about low-budget eating. But according to an investigation by Harvest Public Media and the Midwest Newsroom, some employees of the SNAP-Ed program are paid so little that they themselves are experiencing food insecurity. Dana Cronin reports. Hi guys, would you like to try some roasted garbanzo beans? Once a month on a Saturday morning, Dell Jacobs sets up a booth at the Urbana Farmers Market in central Illinois. People periodically walk by her booth, which today features a simple healthy recipe. And then put it in the oven at 400 for 40 to 50 minutes. I go longer because I like a crunch. This is just one of Dell's responsibilities as a SNAP-Ed community worker. She also runs community cooking classes, visits food pantries, and teaches SNAP recipients how to eat healthy on a budget. 
But this, meeting people at the farmer's market, is her favorite part of the job. I just love talking to people of all walks of life. And that's what I get to do in this job. What Dell doesn't like about the job is the pay. At the time we met, Dell was making $13.79 per hour. She'd been working there for six years, and over that time, her pay increased by just a dollar an hour. She says the pay is so low that, ironically, she herself has qualified for SNAP benefits. She took an additional job to make ends meet. Once a week, I clean a house for $25 an hour, and isn't that sad that I get more for cleaning a house. Dell's not alone. According to an investigation by Harvest Public Media and the Midwest Newsroom, SNAP-Ed employees across the Midwest make on average about $13 an hour. The SNAP-Ed program is grant-funded through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. In most Midwestern states, it's run by a land-grant university. So in Dell's case, the University of Illinois determines her wage. Jennifer McCaffrey is the SNAP-Ed program coordinator in Illinois. She knows that some of her employees struggle financially. Yeah, it, it does concern me. But you kind of have to find out, well, what does this individual need that can help them? So is it more affordable housing? It runs the gamut, right? Dell says what she needs is a higher wage which she did finally receive just recently. She now makes $16.51 an hour. And she's not alone. In just the last few months, workers in Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, and Oklahoma also received wage increases. Candace Gable is the program director in Oklahoma. She just successfully raised her employees' wages from $10 to $12 an hour. But she says that's still not high enough to attract and retain workers. You can't hire anybody because they're so low, because you can go to work at McDonald's in Tulsa and make $15 an hour. But Gable only has so much wiggle room. After all, SNAP-Ed is a USDA grant-funded program. So if she wants to increase wages, she probably has to cut the number of positions. And if we don't have enough people to reach the population, then how are we going to meet our goals? Goals like reducing Oklahoma's high obesity rate or teaching healthy eating habits to children. To do that and pay her employees a living wage, Gable says she needs more money from the USDA. The USDA declined to speak on the record for this story, but did send a statement emphasizing that it's up to each state to determine staff salaries. But there's a cap to each state's SNAP-Ed funding allocation. That number is determined by a formula in the Farm Bill, which is set to be reaffirmed next year. A new formula could mean more money for states, and by extension, for SNAP-Ed workers like Dell Jacobs. And while Dell did get a recent raise, she says she's still fighting to earn a living wage. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. We've got more to come on Statewide. Stay with us. We're back on Statewide, still to come, celebrating diversity in one Illinois city. That and more still ahead. A big problem for people released from prison is finding a job. The national unemployment rate for those formerly incarcerated is at 27%. A state legislative proposal tries to address that. Supporters say it would also help small businesses and society at large. Esther Yoon-Ji King brings us the story. 
When Darius Digby came home from Illinois River Correctional Center last fall, he took a job at a soap distribution factory in suburban LaGrange. Two weeks in, the company contacted him. They text me and then send me an email saying um, that due to your background, we, uh, we have to let you go. Just like that. And I was really getting the hang of it, you know, waking up every day and um, going to work. The 29-year-old who lives in Chicago's Woodlawn neighborhood says he was disheartened and surprised. That's when a childhood friend told him about his job at a spray foam insulation company. He'd been working here for a minute. I just never thought that they was hiring or never thought to ask, like, would they accept felons? Until he told me, like, uh, my boss, he, he loved to hire felons to work for him, so. After the interview and training, Highland Park-based Chicago Green Insulation hired Digby. He's been an assistant installer since July. I feel good because I'm getting a second chance. Digby says he never imagined he'd get a decent paycheck to be able to support his two school-aged children. They live with their grandmother in Indiana after their mom died while Digby was still in prison. So now that I got this job now, I'm more stable and I could do more for my kids and my family. And I never thought I'd be stable like, like I am now. That's just what a proposed bill in the Illinois legislature is trying to do. Help people like Digby get stable. But the proposed Safer Communities Act is also trying to do something else. Help small businesses hire and retain workers in a hot job market. It's really kind of a twofold sort of initiative where, yes, we're addressing traditional challenges with returning citizens, but also turning to community revitalization as it relates to criminal justice reform. That's State Representative Justin Slaughter, who represents parts of the south side of Chicago and the southwest suburbs. He has introduced a bill that provides wage subsidies for businesses that hire returning citizens. He says Illinois has made strides with efforts like Ban the Box, which keeps employers from asking formerly incarcerated people about their backgrounds early in the application process. And there are many training programs out there for returning citizens, too. But this bill is a little different. This one, in essence, goes further in that um, it goes beyond training and actually puts the individual in the job. And this program is also different in that it would work kind of like a voucher. The incentive follows the individual. I, I don't think we've ever had a program where the individual can kind of go wherever they actually want to. And so that's somewhat innovative and creative. So Digby, for example, would have an $850 voucher that he could bring to Chicago Green Insulation, which would use it as a wage subsidy for a defined period of time. The proposed bill would also give the company a one-time $2,500 tax credit for hiring and training Digby. Slaughter says he's been working with the House Speaker's office to prioritize the bill for the next legislative session, which starts next month. Elliot Richardson leads the Small Business Advocacy Council. It's really a win-win, the win for small businesses, the win for formerly incarcerated individuals. Richardson says a lot of businesses he represents are struggling. Small businesses are having a tremendously difficult time finding employees, and that is impacting their operations. Businesses are closing on days they're normally open because they don't have enough staff. But for companies that take this different approach... The feedback is generally very, very positive, that these folks that were previously incarcerated that are hired on by businesses are loyal, dedicated, hardworking employees. 
Richardson says the Safer Communities Act could help reduce unemployment among returning citizens. That rate is about 27 percent, compared with 5 percent among the general population, according to one study. Richardson says giving formerly incarcerated people jobs would also create revenue for the state. Antonio Lightfoot is the organizing director for the Workers' Center for Racial Justice. He says another argument for the bill is reducing recidivism. Most of the crimes in our neighborhoods, uh, black and brown neighborhoods, like inner city, is crimes of poverty. Lightfoot was formerly incarcerated himself, and he was part of the group that helped put the proposed Safer Communities Act together. We know that if people just had an opportunity to make a decent living, then they wouldn't be uh, risking their life to put food on the table. He remembers getting out of prison and having a hard time finding a job that paid a living wage. I got a good job in 2017, and I got out in 2009. That's the reality of it. He says the bill could change that for many like him if it passes in Springfield this fall. Back at Chicago Green Insulation, James Webb preps the truck with his friend Darius Digby. Webb is the one who introduced Digby to the gig. Webb, too, has an arrest record, and when he saw the ad posted by Chicago Green Insulation owner Tom Decker, he thought it was a scam. It sounded too good to be true, but I went in, and Tom was genuine, he was sincere, everything he said that was on the job description was there, and uh, he gave me an opportunity, and I took it. I mean, I've got 150 resumes on my computer. How many small business owners would kill to have 150 resumes to choose from? It's not a guarantee to finding outstanding employees. I could tell you stories of things that didn't work out. But Decker says it works out more often than not. James Webb, for example, has been with the company for almost a year now. It's definitely a learning experience. It's not all peachy, but uh, it's work. And it's definitely something that I can see myself doing a career with, which I take very seriously. When I talk about what I do, I'm proud to say this is my career and this is my plan. Webb says he wants to someday be part owner of the company and give more people like himself and his friend Darius Digby the chance to earn a decent wage. Esther Yunji Kang, WBEZ News. The U.S. Supreme Court next year is expected to decide cases that could alter how race factors into college admissions. The justices are looking at whether race-conscious programs discriminate against Asian American and white students. And today we hear from a Northwestern student who helps lead the school's Asian Pacific American Coalition. Caitlin Wu shares her evolving views on affirmative action based on her own experiences in high school and college. When I was younger, at first didn't support affirmative action because I saw it as like kind of discriminatory against Asian people or like we are at a disadvantage. But I think now looking into it and like really understanding the nuances of like the issue, it's like a tricky topic to talk about. When you talk to other Asian people about this, they all have a very similar experience or like understanding of how affirmative action affects us versus white people versus like other groups of color. And it's very hard because, you know, technically we should be considered diverse because we're such a small minority in the United States, but obviously in higher education, it's not the same. Our college counselors, like, sometimes they would tell us certain things like, oh, don't make yourself too Asian on your application. Um, And, like, I heard that a lot with other peers that I had where they, like, tried to make themselves seem less stereotypical in that way to stand out. The college admissions process 
is run by like humans obviously and humans are gonna have like a preconceived idea of like what a person's going to be like and so I think for those people who may have done more stereotypical like Asian activities they were told to like downplay that or not like lean into it as much. Asia is so big it's ridiculous to like group us all under one like model minority stereotype. I was recently having a conversation about this in my like Chicago field studies class it's like a pre-professional class and we were talking about diversity in the workplace and we were also talking about affirmative action and one of my um, or one of the students said you know I think we should stop considering race and it should just be based on like wealth and stuff or like socioeconomic status but I still feel like like I just have to disagree with that because I think even if we're having like wealthy people of color specifically like black and brown individuals who are wealthy coming to schools, like even though maybe they have more like financial access to opportunity, that doesn't negate the experiences that they have as a person of color and like the difficulties or obstacles they have to encounter. One thing that the Asian Pacific American Coalition is trying to accomplish right now is departmentalization for Asian American studies. Um, we're trying to make it a department right now, I think it's just a program, and so when it comes to issues like that where we're trying to advocate for ourselves, it's hard when the administration is not very diverse and we don't feel like they really want to advocate on our behalf or like support the issues that we believe in. So much of what makes college great is meeting people from different backgrounds and exposing ourselves to new ideas and like people from different countries and people who have different opinions. Like, I think it's very important to be diverse in like every way. And so I think if there wasn't any affirmative action, college would be really like not as interesting and not as helpful in a lot of ways. That's Northwestern University student, Caitlin Wu. For some rural Midwestern towns with dwindling populations, an influx of immigrants is slowing the decline. Jane Carlson tells us about a community art project that celebrates the diversity of one such town. In downtown Monmouth, Illinois, population 8900, a colorful and intricate mural extends an entire city block on the east wall of the United Way of Greater Warren County building. It was made by many hands. College students, Girl Scouts, artists, veterans, historians, farmers, and refugees all played a part. We have so many different people in our community that come from um, different backgrounds. There's different cultures that are represented in our community. Um, and that, that those differences, that diversity, come together to make a really beautiful community. That's Janice Wunderlich. She's a ceramicist and printmaker who teaches art at Monmouth College, a private liberal arts college founded by Scotch-Irish Presbyterians in 1853. But Monmouth is also home to a Smithfield Foods pork processing plant where immigrants from all over the world earn a living. All of that is against the backdrop of a typical Midwestern community, surrounded by corn and soybean fields and cows about 20 miles from the Mississippi River. Jeannie Weber is executive director of the United Way. That organization works front and center with the local immigrant population, which includes concentrations of Burmese and West African refugees and an ever-growing Hispanic population. Um, talking to them, talking to different community leaders about 
what could potentially make them more comfortable and give them a better quality of life in this region. And one of the things that, you know, we talked about was the fact that they really wanted to be represented. And one way to do that was through art. The mural's theme is Common Threads, something that sews everyone together in a quilt of textiles that represents every origin in Monmouth. Weber says all community members were invited to bring swatches of fabric that represent a childhood memory or family origin. I was the first person to provide a piece of cloth, which was part of an Irish napkin that my grandma had (laughs) a really long time ago. And as we started to get this going, it just really boomed. There are also renderings of fabric and representations of culture from Mexico, Kenya, Ghana, Jamaica, Australia, Burma, Poland, India, Sweden, Mali, and Togo. Those are alongside swatches of baby blankets, a grandmother's shirt, camouflage, the Monmouth College tartan, and depictions of maple leaves, birds, and grain bins. Weber says the mural gave the community something a block long that shows no matter where the residents are from, the United States, or somewhere thousands of miles away, they all can have pride in where they came from, but they all can be weaved together beautifully. The project involved meeting with various groups in Monmouth to tell their stories through art. Wonderlick says every inch of the mural has a story behind it, a person behind it, and a group of people to celebrate. From American black history in the community to the variety of African cultures in Monmouth to the bundle of sunflowers painted by someone who recently immigrated to Monmouth from Ukraine. We really want everybody in our community to feel welcome and to feel like they're a part of Monmouth. That's what makes Monmouth so fantastic is that we have all these different pockets of and interesting cultures. A Monmouth College student created the initial design for the mural, and it was funded by donations from area businesses and organizations. Then the United Way contracted Wonderlick and other artists affiliated with Monmouth College to make it happen. I am Rebecca Quick. I graduated from Monmouth College in 2021. Uh, I currently work part-time at Immaculate Conception here, and then I paint murals in my free time. Quick says they got lots of positive feedback and appreciation as they were painting the mural and people were walking by, seeing their culture represented or deciding themselves to contribute. For instance, amid the quilt squares and fabrics celebrating Mama's diversity are 25-foot-tall hands spelling out the word unity in American Sign Language. As we were putting up these hands, uh, a deaf guy actually walked up to us and got so excited explaining how he thought we did a good job putting these up and representing it. Details on every section of the Common Threads mural will soon be posted on the United Way of Greater Warren County's website. I'm Jane Carlson. We're out of time for Statewide this week, but we'll be back next time with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Remember, you can find all of our episodes. They're available at nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. You can also find our weekly podcast through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.